0: Please have Psalm 73 open in front of you and we're going to look really in an overview of the whole of the psalm and to look at some very serious matters, but hopefully very helpful ones to us. Now this psalm is a psalm of Asaph and uh, many of you will know that most of the psalms were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by David and uh, a number, around a dozen, were written by this man who bears the name Asaph. And Asaph belonged to a famous family of singers in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And among other things, these groups of men would lead the singing and the worship. And there were instrumentalists who would play all manner of instruments referred to in the Psalms, and those, of course, particular to Old Testament worship. They were symbolic of the worship of the heart of man and the adoration of God. And Asaph is one of the most well-known of the singers leading the choir of some of God's people in the temple. And it seems that he had four sons and they followed him in his role of leading praise to God. And if you study carefully and go through the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see actually that the line of Asaph, the sons of Asaph, continued in that role from generation to generation for many centuries. And so a prominent man a man used to the Lord. But in this psalm, he tells us of his own experience and a particular mistake that he fell into. And like David, he's obviously a a man of God and he's not a, a worldly man in that sense. He sought to glorify God, spiritually obedient to the Lord. But as with David, not a perfect man. And Asaph is honest here and he falls into a way of thinking that is wrong and at worst sinful. So the question is, what is the problem that caused him to stumble in this way? What caused him to slip? Well, quite simply, it's this. He looked around at the world, and he felt that the wicked prospered more than the godly in this life. And he was dismayed at that. It caused him to stumble. It upset him deeply because the more he thought about it, the more unjust and unfair it seemed to him that the wicked seemed to get off with things and the righteous did not. And so the question is, how do we learn from this? What can we see in this passage? Well, the first thing I want you to see tonight is this. The righteous sometimes envy the wicked. There is something refreshing here about the honesty of Asaph. He's not putting up any sort of pretense. He doesn't conceal his faults or his mistakes. You know, the, the world doesn't like to admit weakness and offer. They try to cover up and and gloss over things or or put a spin on things to make them appear differently. Sadly, that can also be true amongst the Lord's people. shouldn't be like that, but sometimes it is. But the Lord's people should always go for what is true, even when it is to their own disadvantage. And Asaph says honestly that he began to envy the wicked. Look at verse 3. I was envious. Of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, may I say this? It is a a very common thing amongst believers, those who follow the Lord in His Word. And maybe at one point or another, all of us have fallen into this trap. Maybe not all, but many of us. In fact, I would go as far as to say it would be surprising if we could honestly say that we have never been tempted to envy the world. And in order to help us, God in his goodness and purposes has laid down that this man would write these things for our benefit to help us understand that it is a great mistake when we fall into that way of thinking to envy the prosperity of worldly men and women. We should never do it. But at times we are tempted to do it, just as Asaph was. So let's ask the question, why does he envy the wicked? What is it that really sort of, Gets under his skin, as it were. What is it that comes to him? Well, in the verses that follow at the beginning of the psalm, he tells us. So in verse 4, he says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. And so at this point, when he's in that, that place where he's looking at the world, to him it seems in that moment that the world isn't worried when it comes to dying. He's convinced himself that they die peacefully, that they've got no worry, no concern, and that they die with support all around them. And it upsets him because he doesn't feel like that. And Asaph realizes, you see, that death is serious. He realizes that the way that we die determines our whole destiny. And in fact, many of the Lord's people, even those that we would esteem as being, you know, some of the most godly and those who walk with the Lord can at times become deeply exercised about death. Tempted to wonder what will happen. But Asaph sort of looks at the world and in his view, he says, they're not like that. They don't seem to care. The question is, why would they be like that? You see, the world is ignorant of what lies beyond death for those still in their sin. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in judgment. They don't believe in Heaven or hell. Many in the world believe that when you die, that's it. You're done. That's over. Then nothing. And it's so sad, but they, in that sense, they they don't fear what is to come. You know, they're living their life now, and, and then it's over. But Asaph knew different. And he knew that every person has an eternal soul, and that will live after death, either in eternal blessedness or eternal damnation. And so knowing that, as we all of us should know that, He couldn't approach death lightly. He couldn't be flippant about death. He had deep concern and spiritual exercise over it because he wanted to die well. He wanted to die with faith in the Lord and and die in Christ and to, to die acceptable to God. And so it offends him when he thought that Christians and believers die not always, but often with concern of soul and worldly men who live for nothing, but this world seems so at ease, and seems so flippant about death. And he also throws in that he feels they often enjoy better health than the Lord's people. So all of that comes rushing into his thoughts. And then verse 5, another element is, he says they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Now what does he mean? What is he saying there? Well, What he means is this, that the Lord's people are often subjected to chastisement by the Lord. You know, when we're saved, God takes us wonderfully into his family, and a work is begun in us to make us like the Lord Jesus. And so we're we're being made holy, we're in the process of being sanctified. And to do that, God undertakes various measures with us. And so, for example, he teaches us serious things from his word you know, from the Bible that cannot be learned anywhere else. Also, he disciplines us by bringing conviction of sin into our experience or, or troubling our consciences or compelling us to cry out to him for help and, and guidance and wisdom so that we would know how to live for his glory and, and make good decisions. But Asa says, well, the world isn't like that. You know, worldly people... Don't have that trouble with all of that. They don't don't have to face all the the discipline like that. They they seem to live as they please. One preacher uses an illustration a good parent disciplines their child and sets them in the right way. But say a child from another family that isn't a a, sort of a, a, a family that disciplines their children comes over to play with your child for a time. And this child has never really been disciplined or taught how to behave or speak politely and with respect. And they come over and they behave really badly. And this illustration goes on. And he says, it's not your child. And so you just have to sort of endure it for a time. But you think that you'll probably never invite them over again. And so you patiently put up with it for a while until they're gone and never to be repeated. You don't discipline them because it's not your role and responsibility to do so. And so it is with the Christian. God treats the believer as his child, lovingly disciplining them, humbling them, putting them right, rebuking them. But the world doesn't know that. And God gives them over to do as they wish in this life for this time. And Asaph goes on to say, what he thinks worldly people become like because of this. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. And he said, because of this and living selfishly and doing as they please, pride and violence mark those whom God does not deal with. You know, let us be clear. As believers, we would just be the same if God left us to ourselves. If he had not broken into our lives, we would be in exactly the same position but he will not leave his children to themselves. One Puritan puts it like this, God would rather see a hole in our clothes than a dirty spot, and God will rub it until the dirt is taken out of it. In other words, God is molding us and shaping us and sort of getting rid of those blemishes and those edges he deals with us, and he'll rub a hole in the garment if necessary. That's the will of God for our life, our sanctification, our sanctification, and he will deal with us to put right those infirmities and sin in our nature, but not so the wicked. And so they prosper in this world, Asaph goes on to say. Not all, but many. And he looks around, and from what he can see, he says, you know, they get the breaks. They get the wealth, and they get the the status, and the prestige, and the, the possessions, and the, the nice houses. They seem to get away with loose living, and, you know, having sort of loose relationships they do what they want when they want and there doesn't seem to be any consequences but the lord's people you know they seem to have faces as it were ground into the dust many times, and were humbled and were abased and god deals with us in an entirely different way and asaph sees this and he he struggles with it he struggles to to deal with it and it can seem that god gives much more of this world often to the wicked than to the righteous. The righteous often have you know, humiliating experiences, experiences of people's opposition and, and separated from their company. Their names are, are named in shame and they're treated unjustly and unfairly and unkindly. And the world goes on by the other side and, and they're not at all affected by these things. They prosper in their way and it goes on like this. And Asaph carries on, he says in verse 9, and, and what's more, you know, they go they go around the world and they blaspheme. They take God's name, and, and their mouth is against heaven, and they, they speak against the Lord and they say terrible things against him. Seems to be no consequences. And that's what Asaph sees. It can be what the Lord's people say. And there can be a great temptation for the believer to envy the wicked and to almost almost, even regret beginning the life of faith. Now, no true child of God really means that, but we can be tempted to think like that for a moment. And we start to focus on all the the troubles that we have had or, or that we're facing because we're seeking to be faithful to the Lord Jesus and following him. And we look at the seemingly easy life of this world and those in the world. And you know, Asaph goes on and he shares his own heart and the consequence of thinking in this way. Look at verse 10. Therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. Now, what is he talking about? Well, the idea is of sort of towels of water being wrung out. In other words, the tears are wrung out of me. It sort of has brought him to weep because he sees the discrepancy in his perspective at the moment, between the dealings of God with the world and God's dealings with him as his child and with his people and the troubles that he's facing. And then in verse 11, he goes on and he says, well, you know, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? You know, when a Christian comes to faith, his sins forgiven, and yet he sees the wicked doing their own thing and seemingly doing better and prospering. You know, you can understand in this life how he's tempted to say, you know, what am I doing? You know, why why did I become a believer for all this suffering? Perspective is lost. And he begins to stumble and and lose balance because he's not in a good place. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he continues to talk to himself. Verse 13, he said, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. Surely I, I've washed my hands in innocence. And he begins to convince himself, you know, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time to, to go to church or to read the scriptures. It only brings me more trouble than for those who do not do those things. He thinks they're so happy and, and so content doing whatever they want. You know, why should we then pursue the Lord? Is God there? You know, does, doesn't God see what's happening? That's where he is. And in verse 14, he says, it's hard to live right every day with all this. Now, my dear friend, every true believer finds the way to heaven is a difficult path at times. Each decision is important, each word, each action desiring to glorify God. Should I go here? Should I do this? Is this the right thing? Measuring every action because we want to honor the Lord and help others and help our brothers and sisters and not be a hindrance to them. The world doesn't think like that. The world is absorbed in itself and pleasing self and selfish and so says what it wants, does what it wants, hates those who get in the way. And the psalmist says, I find that so difficult. And in verse 16 he says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. That's the experience of this godly man. And it's not confined to him. There are many godly people who have been drawn down to the same. And maybe we ourselves. But what is the way out? What is the solution to this wrong perspective and state of mind? What gets his thinking back into the right way? Well, the importance of the means of grace. We need to come to God's house to understand this problem. You know, there are always many hidden benefits of coming to the house of God, many. And Asaph says we need to go to God's house to see the answer to these problems, to be under the word. And what's the turning point? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. When I came to the house of God and when I sat down and when the scriptures were opened and I heard, then I began to understand. And when we begin to engage with the means of grace, we, we find help, and those who neglect them will miss that help. You know, every unconverted person does not know or understand many things because they got no understanding of the truth of Scripture. They don't know the message of the Bible. And so simply put, they, they don't know where they come from. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they are going. And these poor people are living in darkness. But it's only as we come to the house of God and as the word of God is opened and applied that by God's grace we understand the answer to these great questions. And it gives us perspective. Questions of life, questions of death, questions of eternity. How did I get into this world? You know, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Where shall I be when I die? And if we don't know the answer to those questions we are in darkness with no hope. But when we come under the sound of the word, there are these wonderful answers given. And that's what happens for the psalmist. He is brought to see the end of those who don't believe. He's brought to see the end of those who are sinners, the end of those who are the wicked. He says, I understood their end. When he sat down in the house of God, suddenly he was taken above the world. To think on the holiness of God, the reality of eternity and the end of those who remain in rebellion against God. That's the turning point. And he remembers what happens to those who are apparently prospering, sinful people when they die. And he begins to get that right perspective again. And actually he begins to see that all the things that he thought were true are actually not as true about the world as he thought. He begins to see the fact that those who are still in their sin are not as content. You know, they're not as as flippant and easygoing in that sense, but there is great burden and trouble. And he remembers that's the vital difference between the righteous and the godly, their end and their eternity. And my friend, are you able to see that? Have you understood to this point that a godly man or woman, when the You know, when they die, their soul goes to glory. All their troubles are over forever. They're in everlasting peace. But when the unbeliever dies, when the wicked dies, when the Christless person of this world dies, they don't go to heaven. They go to eternal damnation under the wrath and curse of God. And all those things that they built up for themselves in this world will mean nothing. And they'll be gone. And this truth, it comes and it shakes Asaph from his foolishness. He remembers what he has forgotten by getting sucked in to the apparent attractions of this world, all the, the seeming success and happiness without God and their blasphemy and their rebellion against him. When he comes back to the Word, when he comes back to the house of God, he understands this great mystery of providence and how God often gives more to the unconverted in this world than he gives to his own dear children who love him. The reason, of course, is God reserves the best things for the end. The best is yet to come. You know, some of you will be familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's Work. Let me remind you, the house of the interpreter, there are two boys. One is called passion and the other is called patience. And passion is, You know, he wants all of his good things now, all of his toys and pleasures. He wants them at his feet now. And so in this, the work Pilgrim's Progress, passion gets his heart's desire. Somebody gives him all these things and he's instantly delighted. And he begins playing with all these nice things. The problem is they slowly faded and he was left with nothing. But patience waited for his good things, wanting what the Lord had promised in God's good time. And so as passions, moments of happiness, disappeared and went, then patience received his good things, which would never fade, and never disappear. Now that's the picture of the unconverted, and converted person. The unbeliever lives for now. But all their pleasures, we sang it in the first hymn, all their pleasures are fading. You know, the believer has got lasting treasure, But he has to wait for them in glory. And Asaph is reminded of all this. He sees it again. In verse 18, he says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You you cast them down to destruction. You know, every time I read that verse, it makes me tremble. They're terrible words, frightening words. You know, the people around us, some of them that we you know, adhere to our hearts in this world, They hope in this world. They hope in what this world offers and yet all the good things that the worldly people have now, they're insecure. Can lose them in a moment. All it takes is a a car crash and their life is gone or some illness or some accident or any of these things or all of them put together and death comes. And then they die and their, their soul goes into eternity and they're cast down into destruction. You know, it's never easy to speak of hell, but we cannot wish it away. Some professing Christians, they don't believe in hell, and they will be appalled by what I'm saying, and maybe you might too, objecting to every word, thinking, you you know, you've got no right to tell people about hell. But, you know, if the Bible tells us about hell, no preacher has the right to suppress that. It's not loving to pretend that hell is not there when the word of God is so clear and no one spoke more about hell than the Lord Jesus himself. And here it is in this psalm, it says you cast them down to destruction and when an unforgiven sinner dies, they may have been the richest, they may have been the most famous, the most talented, the most healthy, whatever or not, their end is the same. God casts them into hell forever And at the resurrection, the final judgment day, they will receive their bodies, but only to face that everlasting punishment. And verse 20, the Islamist says, as a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Have you ever thought about that? You know, it's a sobering description of how God will deal with the wicked at their death. The latter end is that God will despise their image. Let me try and give you a picture to help you understand that. You know, imagine you're in an art gallery and all along the wall are paintings of people. And some of them are are famous paintings, some of them are not. But someone comes along and lifts one of these pictures off the wall and gets a hammer and smashes up the picture. And the whole thing is ruined. That is what God will do with the rebellious sinner. Taking their soul and smashing it forever casting them to eternal punishment. You know, that teaching is there throughout Scripture. Jesus said about hell three times in Mark 9, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There are many examples in the Bible of great men of the world who met their end in terrible ways and faced judgment. Do you remember Pharaoh who defied God? He said, I don't know the God of Israel. I'm not going to let their people go. Or you think of Herod in Acts 12 who gave this great speech and the the people cried out, it's not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And the Lord smote him and worms ate his body. Many more who remain in rebellion against God who loved their sin, hated the Lord and are still suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You know, if, if only I could make you safe. Some of you here tonight, you may be facing that end. If only I could make you say, To urge you to flee the wrath to come. And if you are here and you're not yet converted and you're not yet in the faith, let me tell you that the way to begin this godly life is to go through the door. And you say, well, what door? The door into this life is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you should go in right now. In fact, I would say to you, what is to stop you going in right now? You know, this is the day of salvation. And you say, well, where is this door? How can I go through? Well, as you're sitting there, you can say in your heart, Lord, I am a sinner. I can see the end of those without Christ. And Lord, I long to be rescued. I long to be delivered. I see that that Christ is the only hope of sinners Please, Lord, forgive me. Please deliver me. Please save me. Please have mercy upon me that I may know life in Christ. And when you go through the door of salvation in Christ, then you'll become a child of God on the way to heaven. And then you'll be able to see all that the world we have in this life is as dust and as rubbish compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. And when Asaph looks at all of this, do you know? He's ashamed. He's grieved at his own stupidity. Look at verses 21 to 22. Thus my heart was grieved. I was was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It means he was thinking about things before that great turnaround. He was as stupid as an animal. You know, they have no knowledge of eternal things. And Asaph says, oh God, I've I've forgotten all these things. I knew it, but I forgot it and I lost my balance. My feet were were nearly slipping because I didn't like to see the wicked prospering and I forgot their end. Lord, forgive me for those wrong thoughts. You know, that's the lesson that Asaph learned and it needs to be a lesson that you and I learn. As we look around at the godly or the wicked, we should not envy them. We should not envy this world. This world is passing and fading and then will come the judgment. But then as we finish, think of the end of the godly. You know, this is the the terrible end of the wicked we have seen. But we're also told of the end of the godly in verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, how will it be for the believer both now uh, to some extent and facing death and beyond, what will God do? Well, we need to remember this. He will take us by the hand And he will guide us with his counsel. And he will receive us at last into glory. He has promised to be our companion and our guide. And God is with us. And he helps us through this life. He takes us by the right hand and he escorts us through all of the valleys and the the trials and the troubles that we face. And no matter what trials you have, dear Christian, the Lord will hold you and he will guide you through those difficulties. He is the the pilot that guides the ship of life through all those dangerous zones that lie before us. He will give us grace and glory and he will receive us at last into heaven. And you know, the cry of the true believer's heart is summed up in those words, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. You know, when we consider the reality of this world, And it's brokenness and it's fallenness. How blessed we are if we have Christ. Search your heart and say to yourself, is God more to me than everything else? Is Christ really everything to me? Is he the uppermost in my heart? You know, only true believers can say that, no one else. And it's what we ought to be able to say. We are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. He is to be our desire. You know, the believer does not primarily want heaven for a life of blessing or comfort of an ending joy. It will be all of those things. That's not the primary thing on his heart. What the believer longs for is to be with Christ, to be with him. The believer wants more of God. And heaven is not heaven unless Christ is the Christ is everything. The Lord is the life of our life, the life of our soul, the object of all of our aspirations and desires once we are converted. And friend, we know that if we have the Lord Jesus, we have a Savior who loves us and has promised us that he will have us to be with him. And therefore we can face the sorrows of today because we know there is the bright future of tomorrow. When Jesus returns, there will be new heavens for you. That will be your home. You'll inherit the earth. You'll inherit heaven. You'll inherit all that God has promised. But above all, you'll be with him. And you know, there is not a promise in God's word that he will not make good to you there. He will do more good than you can ever ask or even think. He will press down all the blessings of glory upon you. Oh, friend, why should we envy this world? which is headed to destruction, when in Christ we have everything. You know, we're going to stand to sing a hymn in a moment, and in those verses, it is so appropriate for what we have been thinking about. Swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. O oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks, earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O oh, Lord, abide with me. Don't envy this world, my friend. Know Christ, and if you have Christ, You have everything. Amen.